Welcome listeners to the final episode of season four of the Bulldog Educator. Matt and I have thoroughly enjoyed this journey with you this fall, and we're going to be taking a break, but we'll be coming back in season five. But put on your seatbelts because in this episode, we are rejoined by Dr. Jen Clifton, who started off season four with us on episode one. We hope you enjoy this as much as we do. It was a great conversation, and we hope you have some great takeaways to take with you into the holiday season. Listen and enjoy. Bulldog Educator Podcast, Episode 8 of Season 4 of the Bulldog Educator. This podcast content was developed through a collaboration between the co-host Matt Caston and Kirsten Wilson and input from our listeners just like you. Hello, everyone. It's so glad to have you for our last episode of Season 4. Hi. Hello. hello. Oh. Yeah. So today we're joined, as you could hear, um, with Dr. Jen Clifton. She started season four with us with episode one of season four. So as we talk today, if you did not get a chance to listen to season one and you like what you hear through this episode, be sure to go back to episode one of season four to hear more about Dr. Jen Clifton. But what I'd like for um, Jen to do now for our audience is just to share a little bit about herself and what um, she does both in her her role as a professor but also in what she does in her other endeavor or entrepreneurship um, what she does so if Jen if you could share with our audience just a little bit about yourself of course and thank you again both of you for inviting me back to this conversation I got to say, after our first conversation, we had way too much fun. And I was like, I would love to do that again. And then you emailed and invited me to do it again. And so I was very excited. So a big thank you to you both. Uh, Not just selfishly because I enjoy talking to the both of you, but because this topic around the soul health of our teachers and educational caregivers is just so critically important. And so I really uh, appreciate you creating a platform for us to have conversations around how the well-being, the soul health of the caregiver, especially in school systems, is actually part and parcel to teaching and learning. They're not different. They're not separate. They are absolutely intricately intertwined. Um, So to tell you a little about me, my background for those listeners who are new, it's, it's twofold. I am a professor at the University of Minnesota. I run a teacher prep program uh, called the Minnesota Grow Your Own Teachers Program. And I love teaching in that program and being the administrator of that program because that program is designed to create a pathway for people who are called to the profession, who are called later in life, or who are called to a point where they know this is something they need and want to do, but they can't afford to leave their day job to do it. And so I love the mission of working for what we call an alternative pathway to teaching, which allows us to offer classes on the weekends and on the the evenings for people to seek and um, claim their calling to teach. And then we just do a ton, a ton. I shouldn't say we, I should say my director, Laura Mogelson, does so much to bring in grant money so that when the candidates come into our program, they leave with no debt. We like cover books. We co- like like that is that is the mission. So 
I am so fortunate to have continue to keep a strong foot in pre-service teacher education because I am so passionate about the profession of education. I'm obsessed with it, have been since I was a very little girl. Always knew I was going to be a teacher, one of those kind of situations. Um, and then my other work that I do in the world, and somebody once called it my side hustle, and I said, well, actually, it's not a side hustle. If any side hustle, it's my U job. <laughs> Sorry, U job. I love you. But like in terms of my my soul's mission and my soul's calling in the work is my PhD work and is this company called Present Teacher or Present Wellbeing um, and this curriculum that I developed that I bring to school systems that invite all staff in education to learn about what we call soul health and basically heal from burnout and compassion fatigue, uh, prevent burnout and compassion fatigue and protect themselves from burnout and compassion fatigue. Because let's face it, if we didn't have a soul problem in our schools, we wouldn't have droves of educators and leaders and staff people leaving our profession because they're burnt out. So that is my area of expertise in my PhD work. I designed a curriculum that intersected. I'm also a mindfulness teacher, a meditation yoga teacher, and that's those are very secular practices. They're not religious. It's just how do we move our body? How do we cleanse our mind? And how do we be present for the things we love to do? Um, I intersected all of that with my 27 years of being an educator and developed a systematic path to help guide uh, caregivers, especially in education, to feel whole, to feel happy, to feel purposeful, to feel hopeful, all of these really beautiful aspects of soul and spirit that need to imbue the spaces we create for children, because they are pure hope, they are pure potential, they are pure energy. And so if we have caregivers walking into spaces with kids who are bounding with energy <laughs> to create the life of their dreams, and we have souls of teachers not able to magnify that or amplify that or resonate with that, then we have a problem. So it's all intersected and that that is my passion. Um, and I'm also a mom. I have three teenage daughters. I was just telling you before we hit record that my 16 year old just got her driver's license. Um, and then I have twin 14 year olds. So when people say, why do you study burnout and compassion fatigue? I said, because I almost didn't survive it, both as a middle school teacher, but then as a mom with three babies, uh, age one and newborn infants, uh, depersonalization, emotional exhaustion, and lack of self-efficacy where you start to turn on yourself is very real. It is very real, it is slow, it is silent, it is insidious, and it is invisible. And I'm here to raise awareness. So, excuse my French, you know me, I'm pretty blit. So that shit doesn't keep happening. So yeah. that's a little bit about me. <laughs> no, I appreciate that you share that with us because I also think that um, our society um, likes for that to be kept silent. It, that yes. they don't wanna bring it to the forefront because it's, a lot easier to move forward and ignore that and keep working your people to to the point of burnout than to stop and acknowledge that there has to be space for this and that we have to care for others. And I think that um, as we develop as leaders, um, whatever area we're in, because we all lead in some capacity when we have a mission and a vision. And I know that Matthew has a mission and a vision. I have one, and I know that you do too, Jen. 
And so when we have that mission and vision, part of our responsibility is to not take the easy way out. And the easy way out is to look the other way and not acknowledge that there are things going on with our people and that we have to find ways to take things off their plates so that they can be their full selves for the children that are in their classrooms or in their buildings because it's not just about the classroom educators um, and we may get into this as we talk but what i'm seeing is is that in this effort for us to take things off the plates of our teachers because the the wellness that has been discussed and people are starting to recognize it which is a celebration it's just being shifted to our administrators um, and I'm seeing conversations that I'm having conversations, not seeing, but having conversations with administrators out there that have taken so things off their plate, the teacher's plate so that they can, but now they are in a risk of burnout um, because we haven't changed the system as a whole. And so that's, I think, where we're starting to bring awareness is that the system itself needs to be, I don't know, reformed wrecked <laughs> torn down and <laughs> built again yes. you know something but it needs yeah. to be disrupted your yeah. listeners can't see this sorry matthew but i'm like i'm giving all of these silent signs signals to kirsten of like yes oh my gosh yeah so like i'm not sitting here passive even though you can't hear my voice i wish you could see my body movement so matthew sorry about that i had to like i'm like i want people to see how much i was deeply leaning into you kirsten right there I and um and I I've just um some of these conversations have happened very recently for me and that's why it's on my mind because it really struck me as I've had these conversations is that okay mm -hmm. we've started to to acknowledge what's happening in our with our classroom teachers but we're still we we have systems in place that are still pushing people to the brink of burnout and very good people who want to do what's best for kids but at some point we have to stop using that as a gaslight approach mm -hmm. to, to mm -hmm. perpetuate a system and basically burn the best of our people out yeah you know kirsten you, you said something that really struck me and it's, it's something i've been trying to figure out how to make sense of but i, I know it's an idea that needs to happen um, and you, you talked about systems, the system of education and how it, you know, squeezes and, and pushes some of our best people out and burns some of our best people out. Um, and I, I think for me, the way I look at it is that systems um, are designed to produce things, right? Whether that's knowledge or products or whatever it is. And I think that our system of education looks at our students as products. And so for me, I want to imagine what, instead of having an educational system, what it would be like to have an educational community because communities take care of people. Communities take care of, you know, our, our social emotional needs and takes that time to check in. Um, so I, I love the fact that, you know, we're having this conversation. Also, it is so good to be back. Uh, I missed last week's uh, last last episode. I was not feeling well. And it's, it's so funny that every time I, I talk with Dr. Clifton, um, I always have to wonder, like, how, how does she know? Because as she was talking about, you know, taking that time for yourself and um, really confronting burnout, looking at it in the face and knowing what it is and how it feels and what you need to do to make sure that um, you keep it in check, that I needed that time. Um, and so it's, it's good to be back on this podcast and to be talking with 
Dr. Clifton and you, Kirsten, um, about some stuff that was like super top of mind as of like three days ago. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I was trying to imagine, you know, what, instead of systems, what my communities look like and how would they function differently and how would they treat people differently? Well, Matthew, I can, I, I'm, I'm, I grabbed a piece of paper and I'm taking notes. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a researcher. I'm a teacher and I'm a student. I'm a listener uh, and I'm a deep conversationalist. That's the problem is uh, growing up in a household with an ACEs score of eight. And I always throw that in there because I, it's mm -hmm. important to understand my context is that when you talk about looking darkness in the face, right? Looking, that's the only way I've ever survived. It's, it's all I've ever known. Um, when you come from a home with, um, adverse childhood experiences and you're an adult survivor of complex PTSD, um, you don't have a choice but to constantly face darkness. Mm. And the most beautiful thing I've learned, I'm calling it, you know, wounds to wisdom. Uh, the ter terminology now around it is called post-traumatic wisdom. So there, there is some language now around, like when you look darkness straight on and, and Kirsten, to your point too, about we can't ignore this. Right. We just we can no longer ignore it. Here's what I discovered. When I ever, whenever I look darkness like square on, two things happened. Number one, the darkness got smaller. It was actually little. It 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 was it was ominous, but it was it was something that when I looked at it square, I could call upon my intuition and move through it. The second thing I learned every time I've looked darkness square in the eyes is I just discovered a capacity of my soul and spirit that I'd never felt before. And it was only in that moment, kind of just like how intuition works. Intuition only works in the immediacy of the moment when you're getting your intuitive hit, right? It's that that's on purpose. So I feel like this resilience, this capacity to look darkness square in the face is just something that we have to do as a human condition. It isn't just on those of us in systems of education. I mean, it's gotten darker in here. It's gotten darker in here in in, in terms of like after post COVID, however we're naming mm -hmm. that. Um, but one of the things that I've discovered of just being human and healing from P complex PTSD and finding my way in the world as I raise three daughters um, on my own is that I have more capacity than I ever realized. And I could only find that capacity when it got super dark. It's almost like, it's like that virtue of patience. You seek and you find patience in the moment you are impatient. It's the virtue of trust. You seek and, and become trusting and faithful in moments when you are tempted to do the opposite. So mm. we're missing a tremendous opportunity of actualization of human resilience and our tenacity of spirit if we avoid the darkness. We're, we're actually atrophying ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we want darkness to prevail and we're giving darkness a pass to always be around. That is not what we're saying. But we are saying that as a community, and I love that, Matthew, I love this concept of moving from system to community. Whenever we're in community, and I talk a lot about energy awareness because burnout is a depletion of energy. At its core, burnout is soul sickness. It's where your compassion, your empathy, your emotions, your, your mind, everything starts to kind of bleed and you can't like plug it up, right? Burnout is, is energy drain of your system. That's why when people are burnt out, stage three burnout is 
chronic physiological conditions like headaches, stomach aches, can't sleep, then chronic like philosophical conditions of burnout are depression, the desire to flee, the desire to like move away from everything. What we are teaching people, my, my goal is to show people how to see in the dark. You, there, there is a way to see in the dark. And when you learn how to see in the dark, you're going to find a strength of character you've never discovered because it couldn't be, it, it wasn't accessible to you before that. Um, and not only that, as you see in the dark, you then start to see other people who see in the dark. And then all of us who start to learn how to see in the dark, we bring the light in and we start to like, we start to share in that like power. We start, start to share in that energy of hope. And all of us as a collective, as a community, um, just from an energy perspective, we're just a lot stronger. It's like, Matthew, if I was going to pick up a two by four and I tried to pick it up on my own and it was all wonky and you came by and you're like, Jen, just like put it down, go, you go grab one side, I'll grab the other. And when I say go, just like, like hoist it up. It's like, that was so easy. So this educational community versus a system, um, is so profound from that place of if we are really here to like learn how to face our own darkness because p.s we all have it um right there are i think it was the stutz video stutz is the name of the psychiatrist of jonah hill there's a great uh documentary on netflix called stutz and it's jonah hill psychiatrist and he says there's three things no human can avoid uh pain uncertainty and hard work so my quest is to create curriculum and opportunities where I hold the space for people to know how to use social and emotional learning, soul competencies, these, these inner states of dispositional readiness so that when the darkness comes, cause it will, you know actually how to move your muscles. You, you know how to continue to find that hope. You know how to connect with your intuition. You know how to connect with other souls who resonate with the same mission and vision as you. And when you do that, right, as Jane Goodall says, um, and I love this quote by Jane Goodall, who's the conservationist activist. She says, I know it seems like we're all staring into a dark abyss of a tunnel. And it feels like there's a little baby star at the end. And she says, hope is running to that star. Hope is not standing on the dark end of the tunnel, hoping the star comes to you. And so this opportunity to teach people how they can move their legs, how you, you can run toward it, you can run toward the light. There's, there's practices steeped in neuroscience and interpersonal neurobiology and uh, trauma responsive therapy that underscores all of this. And when we work in, in, in schools with children, it just really feels so critical that we A, know this about the human spirit, right? The, the magnitude of the capacity of the beauty of the human spirit, because we're raising human spirits, but then also to remember the magnitude and the capacity within us. Um, so that's, that's kind of, that's so fun to think about, isn't it? been in the process of reading the deepest well oh yeah mm -hmm. um which talks about yeah <laughs> jennifer just held up the book 
for our listeners of the book that I was talking about. And Jennifer, if you can, will you tell the listeners the author? Because I can't remember it off the yes, top of my yes. head. Yes. Yeah. Nadine Burke Harris is a uh, child. uh, She's a, um, oh my gosh, why can't I think right now? She's a pediatrician and she worked in inner city settings where she saw incredibly off the charts, like um, manifestations of illness in children who were way too young to have certain manifestations of illness. And then she started to, to track how it was connected to or correlated to high ACEs or high adverse childhood experiences. So that's who who uh, Nadine Burke Harris is. I highly recommend that anyone that either has a high ACE score themselves um, or works um, works in schools, um, read this book to understand how um, an, ACE, an ACE score is an adverse childhood experience. Uh, if you Google it, you'll find, um, you'll find all kinds of information on it, but the body of her work is around ACEs and how these these situations that children are in, um, these adverse childhood experiences create just exorbitant amount of stress that a young body is not equipped to handle and basically how their response to that physiologically and behaviorally and emotionally impacts this child. And um, But she also talks about the correlation of how that can can um, carry over into adulthood um, and Mm. impact adults that maybe they did not recognize or experience it as children, but then it it manifests itself later in life um, with seemingly well-adjusted, healthy people suddenly have some sort of health crisis of some sort and they they can't link it to anything like poor eating or um, lack of exercise or um, those things. And, and they start doing some research and realize that an indicator of some of these older, as you get older, like health problems such as diabetes or uh, stroke or um, heart issues can be also this, that this is a risk factor is having the ACEs. And so that just inform information is valuable too, for those of you out there, as you learn about this, that you have maybe a very healthy adult, but you may be experiencing some um, uncharacteristic health issues. It might be a good idea to look back and see if you have some adverse childhood experiences growing up and then inform your doctors and if they don't know what an ace is maybe give them the deepest well (laughs) (laughs) and help them help them learn more about this because i I think it's it's a it's a growing um area of information and um Mm -hmm. and health and and how we manage health for both our children both Mm -hmm. in schools and at home um, and in our communities but also how we help each other as adults um, you know, manage and navigate our own health as well. Yeah, but, um, it, it, you know, that that work is super relevant. It's, it's always relevant, but super relevant, particularly now as we're in, you know, a holiday season, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and working in the classrooms, I realized that the holiday season isn't always great for everyone um, for a myriad of different reasons, right? And so I remember in the classroom, I, I started to notice that a lot of my students were not acting as themselves mm-hmm. and i was like what's going on mm-hmm. and i took some time to think about it, like okay it's gonna be a lot of family time coming up christmas thanksgiving everyone's home life is different 
Um, and as we know, as adults, family can be the cause of a lot of stressors. Um, and so, you know, having that resource, the deepest well, and, you know, taking that time to, to think about what may be going on with the students as well as ourselves as an adults, because I know that December for me is a particularly hard month for a number of reasons. Um, but yeah, you, you're so right. Like this, this work is so important, not only in making sure that our classrooms are places of belonging and where students can feel safe and bold enough to take chances in any way, um, but also for us as an adults to make sure that when we're in those classrooms, that we're, you know, focused on our students or able to focus on our students um, as well as take care of ourselves. So, yeah, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> say that again, Matthew, because I started oh. to talk and I over, yeah, what say I think is so huge, especially going into these dark months here in like, I live in Minnesota. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What did you uh, call it? I said seasonal affected disorder is real. It's very real. It's very real. This is the time of the year where I get a lot of requests for speaking gigs or, or I call mm. them my booster sessions, bring me in for one hour booster session. And the favorite topic right now during the dark months is um, the science of hope. And so I come in for an hour and I talk about the science of hope and how we see in the dark through these dark days because it affects everybody. And I absolutely am so um, loving being a part of this conversation with the both of you around, again, a raising awareness around adult complex PTSD um, one of the modules, I have the Present Teacher Restoration Project, which is prior to COVID, I did an eight-week training for teachers that um, that incorporated mindful movements, right? Because we know we need to get into our body so that we can regulate, relate, and respond and, and really um, calm our nervous systems. Um, and then we talked about all of these core topics of... Um, banishing burnout, healing from burnout, protecting oneself from burnout. And so I, I had a series, a class that was, you know, every Monday night for eight Mondays in a row. And then when COVID hit and nobody was in person, I was just like, well, everybody needs this now more than ever. So I put it on, I made it an online training and I called it the present teacher restoration project. And I recorded the videos in two months, like super fast. Right. Uh, Cause this needed to get out to people sooner than later. And so it, it's an, it's eight modules with eight different topics. And each module has like a 10 to 12 minute um, educational video. One teacher called them. She's like, I call them my wheatgrass shots. I just, I watch it. It's like, a, it's densely packed with all the good information. And it's just like a wheatgrass shot. And then I have like a 12 to 15 minute, like mindful movement video. Just get into your bodies, everybody. Depersonalization is that numbing effect where you start to feel like you don't feel like yourself. That is a problem. If you hear yourself saying to yourself or your partner or your friends or your principal or that you don't feel yourself, you are you are in dark stages of burnout. Um, we can reconstitute you, I promise. I promise you're not gone, I promise. But this is dire, right? Um, and then I also have like a, a 10 minute kind of guided mental health, just visualization and then some handouts. But to your point, both of you, um, the seventh module, um, Oh gosh, I made a mistake. It's the sixth module. Sorry, you'd think I'd know this by now. The sixth module is called Trauma and Teaching. And what it is, it's meant to raise awareness around, I know that we know and we're dedicated to trauma-responsive practices in our classrooms for kids. And we should be, we should be. 
But let's not forget, many of us who are adults are walking around with complex PTSD that has never been recognized. And so my mission is to help adults to see the reason why you may react to certain things and have a dysregulated reaction to something that's really wasting a bunch of energy, right? Like, right, when we have dysregulated reactions to things, those, those can be associated at a trauma trigger. Like way back in the day, we need to get to the source of that ooeyness. And I say in my trainings too, I am not a therapist, everybody. I am not, I'm a doctor, I'm a soul doctor. I'm not a, right? Get a therapist, get, get multiple therapists. This is just one aspect of support. But to stave off burnout, which is this perpetual bleeding of energy, sometimes you have to get to the source of those core things that keep triggering you. And what we start to see as we look deeper and we look straight square at the darkness, that a lot of the times our triggers to things have nothing to do with the person or the kiddo who's triggered us or the colleague or the event. They're often lied layer, layer, layers deep in deep, dark pain that has not been expressed. And we just, we need to name that so that again, teachers and leaders and educational caregivers don't feel like there's just something wrong with them. Um, Cause there isn't all I'm, all I'm trying to say is I believe in creating spaces of care and community um, for everybody in systems or schools of education not just for children because what i've learned growing up with really unhealthy caregivers is that if an unhealthy caregiver is present it creates issues in the context of the space so my mission is to say yes and if we're going to create safe spaces of care and belonging and love and respect for our kids those have to be the same spaces of care and condition for our administrators our teachers and our educational caregivers because how we are inward is how we are outward. And we, we have to start to see this parallel. And I think that when people really sit with it, right? And, and uh, Kirsten, to your point, actually turn toward it and look at it. It's impossible to, to deny. It's impossible to deny, yeah, when I'm in a space with somebody who is having a pretty severe reaction to something, it's hard to deny that that doesn't impact you. And if it doesn't, chances are something's stuck and it's not great that you're that numb and remember our little kids are sponges of energy they they sponge our energy and teachers please know this is not me saying you have to be perfect I am not saying that but you need to know where your pain is coming from and you need to know how to regulate it and you'll discover when these things come through and you're in your classroom and you say to your kids hey you guys December's a tough month these are the things that happened to me. Again, be mindful what you share with ages, right? But but kids know December is really tough for me. So if you see me being a little sad or a little tired, sometimes this is what it means. Every time I have talked to a teacher who has done that or when I've done it, kids extend the largest circle of grace and the most beautiful hug. I'm getting chills right now because I don't want to cry. That it's just so beautiful. And we give them, when we are true and authentic with our pain, we give them opportunities to feel that innate care that's already in their bodies. And so it's not about perfection. It's not about hiding, um, but it is about getting to the source of things. And there is support for that. Well, and to that end, 
And like when you see a colleague or someone in the profession that is struggling and you are either numb or, you know, tell them to, you know, suck it up, buttercup. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like it's a, it's a form of malpractice, mm. like caring for other humans. Your care is in malpractice because we, we have an obligation in this world to care for one another um, and that human part of that. And so if you're in a space where you are, don't have the capacity to care before you have malpractice with someone because you have locked that part off of yourself, I would really dig deep as Jen is talking about and find out why that's walled off for you. Um, because as children, when you see that outpouring, that's who we all were before mm -hmm. we started putting up walls. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, and at some point as a system of, of self-protection, we put up walls. And what, what, what it did is it protected us from that initial hurt, but now it's harming us in our ability to connect and care for others. Um, yep. And so getting back to what we were initially designed to do, which is to care for one another. Yeah. And this is a perfect place, yeah. People who don't care don't burn out. So if you're in stage three burnout and you're like, oh my gosh, this is me. I am numb. I am reactive. I am sick. I'm in emotional exhaustion. There's something wrong with me. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad teacher. The opposite is true. No, you care deeply. You care deeply. You care deeply because people who don't care don't burn out. That's all I want to say, Matthew. <laughs> no, I love that you said that because it, it, it's so true. Um, I, I was just going <laughs> to... Person, you said something that I thought was was really cool. You talked about, you know, as, as children, when we're first learning to build those walls as a form of self-protection, right? And then sometimes we do it intentionally, sometimes subconsciously, but we carry those walls into adulthood. And I think you made a, a really great point, both of y'all did, about how those walls or those behaviors may show up if you're a teacher in the classroom, in your class rules, all the ways that you interact with folks in the schoolhouse, right? And it dawned on me that, you know, walls in and of themselves are not necessarily bad, right? We do need to protect ourselves from a lot of things. Um, but I'm like, hmm, okay, well, what if I could build a wall with a window or with a door, right? Or garage doors or whatever it is, right? So I still have the protection, but I still have that ability to let people in. And also, just as importantly, have the ability to step outside. <laughs> because so I think a lot of... Yeah, I was looking at some of the stages of burnout and withdrawal is one that I've seen in a lot of teachers, a lot of students and myself as well. And it is, speaking from personal experience, it can be extremely easy to just withdraw and say, you know what, here's my space. This is the capacity that I have to, um, to take up right now. Right. And this is what it's gonna be. Um, so this conversation made me think about, you know, what are ways that we can still protect ourselves while allowing free flow of access of people and emotions, yeah. as well as recognizing when we have withdrawn and be like, okay, I need to make some changes here. Matthew, I, can I, I'll explain it to the listeners because they won't be able to see it, but can I show you something about how I've been teaching that lately? I'm a visual person. You guys, I'm a, I'm an elementary and a middle school teacher. So I've been, when I come to my presentations and my keynotes, 
I have some technology, but very little. I've been doing a lot more with props, but what I'm showing uh, Matthew and Kirsten right now is a calendar, uh, ca uh, oh my gosh, candle, <laughs> a large candle, okay? And I'm actually going to do this right now. I'm gonna light it. I'm gonna light this flame, right? And I can light it, keep it lit. And I want you to think about like an actual, um, like even a fire, right? It's more efficient just to keep the fire lit or to keep the fire stoking or when you put the fire to bed at night, right? You don't let it fully burn out. You always wanna keep a small little baby smolder for the next morning, right? It's the same with our spirits. If somebody comes up to me and I'm gonna blow this candle out right now, everybody, and I just have the candle in front of me, no barrier, no protection, it's super easy. Somebody can walk by me and the wind can make the candle move or if I blow it, it goes out. And then there's smoke. And whenever there's smoke, there's just like a little bit of, it's just, it gets it gets dark and sooty and I can't, I'm coughing because I'm inhaling the smoke. You guys can see the smoke right now, right? So I'm gonna light it again. Every morning I wake up and I light the candle again. And I'm like, well, what if, what if there's another way? What if since energy is not created or destroyed, what if we just transfer the energy? What if, what if we just start to build this beautiful glass and what I'm showing Kirsten and, and Matthew is this really long, beautiful glass hurricane. And what if we learned how to create boundaries that protected our flame? So everybody, I just put the flame of the candle inside this really long glass hurricane and I did not burn my hands, everybody. That was right, in, I know, I had to, to like drop it way down. I want you all to imagine the longest glass hurricane. But here's what I'm seeing too. And I love Matthew, I love your metaphor of, of again, like the stepping out and the in that, that is so beautiful. And we need conceptualizations, everybody to talk about this. We are all visual learners. So here's now what I've done is we can learn everybody. And this is what I teach in my trainings, especially my present teacher restoration project, like the eight module trainings, or if a district works with me like throughout the year, is I teach you how to build this glass hurricane step by step by step. And so that when somebody comes up to you or when I, so I'm blowing, what's happening to the flame, Kirsten and Matthew, as I'm blowing into this glass hurricane? Nothing. It's protected. The flame stays solid, but here's the beautiful thing. It still casts light and it still casts warmth and it, and it's, but it's protected. So there is absolutely a way to protect your flame, your passion, your mission, your purpose, your energy, while simultaneously still showing up in spaces where you cast and shed a light that actually brightens the room, but it's not taking away from you. And so this is the new paradigm we're working toward is understanding that, and I often say it this way, the best protective mechanism against burnout and compassion fatigue, because those feel awful. We're caregivers, everybody. <laughs> we are caregivers. The, the worst way to wound us is to impact our capacity to care and burnout and compassion fatigue numb us and disconnect us. That is like, if you don't, that's like hell to us, like trapped in our own prisons. It is, we're caregivers. So my mission is to say, and to teach people, not just to say, do it, but to show people, invite people into spaces to do the work in school settings, together with their peers. The best way to protect yourself from burnout and compassion fatigue is actually to bring more soul into your role. 
It's actually to make your flame bigger, 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 bigger. And there's strategic ways to do it that is based on neuroscience, interpersonal neurobiology, um, attachment theory, um, transformative social and emotional learning. Like this, this stuff isn't as I much ascribe to being woo-woo, right? It's science-based, everybody. It's just, it, I, I, you know, and so we do, we want to bring more of our soul into our role because as your flame gets brighter, here's what happens. You make more of an impact because your flame is brighter, your presence is brighter, and then that fuels you even more. And then the more that you get aligned with yourself, and this is what I teach people how to do, how do you metabolize stress so that it pulls up your core values, your core qualities, your core purpose, your core mission? How do we use stress as metabolic fuel to like elongate our flame? There is a way to do it. Um, how do we how do we stoke hope? How do we intentionally stoke compassion? How do we stoke all of these ways of being that are just part and parcel to good relationships? And let's face it, everybody, teaching is a relationship-based profession, <laughs> right? Teaching is a relationship-based profession. Like we, we are called to need to know this stuff. When you learn about how you can grow yourself in the process of teaching children, then the impact that you do in your work becomes profound. And then you actually feel more of yourself, not less of yourself. And to bring it full circle, is that not what our calling is doing? Our calling is designed to not only be a source of support and service to the world, but our calling is designed to bring us home to ourselves. This is why burnout and depression and compassion fatigue feel so awful. And people say, I feel like I don't know myself because it's true. You've gotten very, very far from yourself. It doesn't have to be that way. We know better. We can do better. And we need to create the conditions in school mm. settings to facilitate this self-actualization of our caregivers. Well, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here Good. a little bit. Good. Um, and it's not, yes. not, it's more about a phrase that I've been hearing as of late. And it goes something like this. We finally have teachers focusing on the business of school and we're able to move past that self-care stuff and that seemed to be keeping us from the important work. I want to know what your thoughts are around how this, and especially after everything we've talked about, I want to know your thoughts around this and what is a way that we can respond that's both positive and helps shift thinking and continues to bring value to the work of teaching students and to educator wellness. Like, because pe people say that and I, and I want to say something in response, but I'm not sure what. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Well, so I'm a researcher and I'm a teacher. And so I, and I'm not any, any researcher, I'm what you call a phenomenologist. And a phenomenologist is just a fancy word who studies relationships. I study how humans interact with their world. I study how an experience for Kirsten is different than experience, an experience for you, Matthew. Same experience or same, same event, radically different experience, right? So like right now, Kirsten and Matthew, you guys are, and me too, we're all experiencing the same podcast, radically different. Same event, different experience. So I'm a phenomenologist who studies to seek to understand the like phenomenon, like, like how are we relating to something? I often say, I like to see what frames are seeing. So whenever I hear something like that, I don't, I don't, 
I don't retract. I don't get offended. I don't get shock and I don't get judgment because I've trained to overcome that. That is a training. I've trained myself in moments where I feel a little like my, my, my hairs kind of like stick up because they did with that. In those moments, I've trained myself to be curious, to be curious. And I actually lean in. So when I hear somebody say, we finally have teachers focusing on the business of school, I say, stop right there. Holding sacred spaces for children to find their power and their passion in the world is not a business. It's a state of being. Okay. So let's, let's just, let's unpack that. The second is, and we are able to move past, okay. Um, most things are not ever able to be moved past. <laughs> Anything that happens to you is always part of your story, your lived experience. So this whole concept of moving past something is um, also just not, not really helpful. It's all about integration. We know health and well-being from a neuroscience um, perspective is all about integration of systems. It isn't a moving past, it's a moving into, and it's an integration of. So that phrase is, is something that I'm curious about. And then the other thing that I'm really curious about is the self-care stuff. Whenever people say stuff as a researcher and as a teacher and as a mother, that is my signal that they just, they don't quite know what we're talking about and that it's my job to help raise awareness. It's not my job to say, well, you should already know this. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor being like, quit bringing me all these sick patients. <laughs> no, that's my job. So when I hear people say things that um, that don't feel very grounded, that statement to me doesn't feel very grounded. It feels almost like kind of rush past something, like fix something. That's when I'm like, no, wait, this, this seems important to slow down and to dig into. Um, so self-care is one of those words now that I think has been um, people, it's like I was a language teacher. Words can be slippery. Um, we have to know what we mean by that. It's one of those words where if we're in a conversation and you ask me what I mean by self-care, I need to ask you what you mean. We need, we need to know what we're talking about because it's too big of a phenomenon. Self-care is too big of a phenomenon to just say stuff. Um, and, and it's also really like um, loaded with a lot of misperception and conceptualizations that are not helpful. So I'm all about what's helpful what can deepen our experiences? And then that last part of that, and this is what I do again as a researcher, because I'm a data analyst, I, I analyze data, I can't help it. But it seems that, and it says that, that seemed, seemed, that's not fact, seemed to be keeping us from the, from the important work. I would ask, well, what is, what is your, what is your standard of care? What is your standard of success? What is your standard of social justice? What are the standards of quote unquote, important work that you're measuring against so that I, I know what we're working with here. So for me, whenever I hear a statement like that, I, I just get super curious and I want to know more because I find that whenever somebody, or if I hear somebody utter a statement like that, um, core to what I do is about let's rest our attention. Cause remember as teachers, we're asking kids to do that all the time. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Okay, well, let's do it as teachers. All right, everybody, let's slow down. Um, we need to identify for our own selves, especially as edu educators, because there's lots of evaluation metrics, right? Teachers are over-evaluated all of the time. <laughs> the question needs to be, 
yes, I see what you're focusing on and what you're seeing, but also what are you missing because there's no metric of evidence for it? Can you see hope in my classroom? Can you see love in my classroom? Can the, what, you know, there's other invisible elements of good, what we call relational spaces that I would argue from a neuroscience perspective, and you know me, I'm ready. I'm ready with my neuroscience. I assume the important work, and I'm making an assumption here. I assume the important work of schooling is student learning, right? Can we all agree, right? Is that a fair assumption, do you think, just to run with this? That the important work of schooling is student learning? Yes, but then we have to define what student learning is, looks like, how it's measured, all that stuff, but yes. Yes, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, thank you. This is why we get along so well. But let me just keep it just at the learner perspective and what we know about the neuroscience. Okay, this is from interpersonal neurobiology. Relationships provide the experiential foundation of joining that not only keeps us alive, but also molds how our brains grow and enable us to thrive. When the relationship connections we have with our caregivers are integrative, that means they're integrated. When we are honored for differences and when compassionate linkages are created, our brain's integration grows. Integrated brains enable optimal regulation. It says relation-based fields, it allows for this growth of neural integration, which is necessary for optimal self-regulation, which is then intimately connected with learning, memory, uh, all of the five competencies of SEL, self-awareness, self-management, management, relationship skills, social awareness. If we're talking about, if we're if we're not if we're not seeing the intimate connection between how a teacher or leader or caregiver, educational caregiver, because I like to be inclusive of all staff members, all of the many beautiful souls that come to the calling to teach. We have to understand that there are three things happening in a classroom from an energy perspective. There's the classroom relation, there's the relational field of the classroom, what the classroom feels like. There's the inner interiority of the teacher, how they're relating to themselves, how they're relating to their stress, how they're relating to their joy, how they're relating to their mission, how they're relating to their values, right? And then there's the children and how then all of those interrelationships all coalesce. So it's really impossible to tease out from a data perspective the interiority of the teacher and care for the self is quite truly an act of professional development around self-actualization and, and being the best soul in your role. So I don't, I just don't quite see how from the important work of what it means to do the business of schools, how you could actually extract the inner livelihood and liveliness of a caregiver, if that's what we want to call self-care. Um, because I don't know that anybody would really argue and the research proves it too, that if you have a disconnected caregiver in a relationship space with children, that it causes ripples that it, it makes it difficult for the kids to actually, we just know this from attachment theory, it makes it really hard for kids to attach. 
And kids need to attach to their caregivers for information and energy to flow. That's the definition of a relationship. A definition of a relationship is the flow of energy and information. So if they, if your, if your students can't feel their teachers, because the teachers are numb and disconnected, and again, we're not blaming the teachers. That is not at all what I'm saying here. The exact opposite, actually. I'm just trying to show how the inner life of the teacher is dramatically necessary to the sacred work of community building that we call being in a school setting. That's my response to that. Sorry, that was- No. I appreciate that response. And I was actually thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of thinking, of Maslow's hierarchy of, um, anyway, the triangle. You guys the know- needs. Yes, yep. thank you, hierarchy of needs. And I was thinking about if you're going to have someone that's self-actualized, you also have to take care of their safety and their belonging and their basic needs. And in a school setting, basic needs is something that in most situations is, is something that the adults can care for. Although I would argue that sometimes we don't put things in place so teachers can take care of their basic needs. Like a teacher has to go to the restroom on a schedule and right. you know can't leave their classroom um, at certain periods of time and that is a basic need um, and a teacher works through their lunch period because they don't have the time to prepare so they're not getting themselves that time of rest and food which is a basic need um, but then safety and sense of belonging those are things that there's a certain amount that is a community based um, and that's where leadership comes into play um, and other colleagues come into play and the culture in which you work comes into play. And all those have to be in place, yet the system says you're going to be self-actualized whether these other things are provided for or not. And, mm -hmm. and that's why we have teachers in situations that are in burnout and are dysregulated themselves because we haven't taken care of their basic needs. We haven't made sure that they're safe and we have not made sure that we've created a culture that gives them a sense of belonging. But yet we require the highest level on Maslow's hierarchy of needs from them to provide that highest level to their students, but we're not taking care of the foundations. Mm. And that's what yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about that. Um, yeah, that that is so deep. Uh, it, it it reminded me of something I always would, would share with with teachers that I was working with um, when I was training teachers, which is the things the, the system that we're trying to rehabilitate, reform, deconstruct, whichever verb you want to you know use in relation to the system. Uh, it's important for us to understand that as educators, we are also products which is a, a very specific word I want to use here, products of that same system. And so we're going to mirror and exhibit the same um, conditioning and behavior that we were, um, you know, that we were expected to adhere to as, as students in this system. And so, you know, to, I, I think it's important to note that it's, you know, Jen, we were talking about how that work looks and how, self-actualization can actually be professional development right I, I love that that concept it's it's a reminder for teachers to to not only be patient with your students as they are trying to navigate this system right but also 
as educators know that we're also working through undoing some of this conditioning and learning alongside with our students. And so for me, I see that as a way to one in for that relationship. When I look at students and say, hey, we're, we're dealing with the same issues, right? We, we both have to go to the bathroom on the schedule. <laughs> you know, we, we both feel a lack of autonomy, you know? And so I, I choose to see those those things that need that need changing in the system as a way to relate with students and help teachers relate with themselves and, and you know their administrators because it's it's easy again to withdraw and say in my teacher role I can only do this and I feel powerless. Um, but yeah, the, the thinking about how we're working through undoing some of the conditioning while we're helping our students undo some of the conditioning uh, really struck me as y'all were talking about how to navigate this system. Matthew, that is so profound. And what's profound about it is that you've hit the nail on the head with, if we actually remember as educators and all of us called to the field of education, we have to really remember what it's like to be a learner, everybody. Mm -hmm. Like that's also why I believe so deeply in self-actualization for the educational caregivers to be PD is because it forces us to remember how hard it is to learn and grow. And because remember, the true all learning occurs from unlearning in order hmm. to learn you must unlearn what you knew before so so that that matthew what you're talking about is is the work and matthew actually that's also the work of healing that's what's so silly about and i, I don't mean silly in a, in a pejorative way um it just Actually, I said pejorative, and after I said it, I'll be honest with you, my brain was just like, do you know what my my inner roommate was just like, you just said pejorative out loud. You don't actually know what it means. So anybody out there, if you're just like, Jen did not use pejorative right there, it may have sounded smart, but I don't actually know if that works. Here's what I want to say. <laughs> this is me. This is how I teach. I'm so close with my inner roommate. She and I are friends now. So when she talks to me and she's like, what did you just say? That was silly. You're wrong. I was just like, okay, I'm just going to name it for everybody. Okay. See, we have to have fun with this. We have to. Yes. And that again, doesn't diminish the work, everybody. Not at all. When I said silly, I didn't mean to like diminish the work, but all learning is both a simultaneous unlearning and leaving behind what you once knew while you acquire and make space for new room of learning and, and becoming, right? It's the same with healing. In order to heal, you have to unlearn, you have to, you have to put to bed, you have to integrate through purpose and meaning the wounds because when you unlearn and you, you integrate um, the harm that was done to you, you open the space for the healing to happen. And so this, and, and I, I'm wondering too, uh, Matthew, that I hear you about the systems. And I wanna say this too, from a, a woman who um, has over time had to develop really, really great reverence for her boundaries because I blew past mine uh, for a very long time for lots of reasons, but I've learned to have reverence and respect for the, the limitations of my body. I've learned to have reverence and respect for the fact that I do actually have to eat. I do actually have to connect with my children. I do, I do have to sleep, everybody. Um, there is only so much I can care for in a day. I, I have only a certain number of care units, <laughs> truly, and I'm a very caring person, but like 
by 10, 17 PM, my care units are gone and my girls will tell you. Yep, that's when mom hits her wire. Uh-huh. Limitations are meant to keep us safe, right? When, when I teach teachers about behavior um, expectations and creating sacred spaces and spaces of learning, optimal learning, we talk about freedom within form. There does have to be a form, right? The thing about systems is this, it's important, I think, um, I agree with you wholeheartedly and let's go ahead and start all of that around schools as communities and, and take the word systems out. I'm with you a thousand percent. So please know what I'm about to say doesn't, it's not at all uh, pushing back on. But we are all products of systems. Mm -hmm. We have the, our, our social system, we have our cultural system, we have our universal human system, we have our, um, governmental system we have our systems of our homes like right so so there's this awareness that systems were embedded within systems within systems within systems and i'm not saying any of that's right or i'm not trying to suggest like well we're screwed uh and i didn't use the f word there right now everybody my inner roommate wanted me to say fucked but i was like you can't say that kirsten didn't give you the go ahead to say that <laughs> Yeah, it's getting late, everybody. It's 618 where I'm at and I'm at the end of my day. So you're getting you're getting the nice the raw gen and who's like, you know, she's just yeah. Um, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is we do have to work within the confines of what we have. And we have to unlearn the things we want to leave behind to push the boundaries of the system to expand to the level in which we know they can hold more love, more belonging, more understanding, more compassion. Because let's face it, you know, we're able to grow in awareness and compassion and love. And we are humans who make up systems because systems are in and of themselves inhumane. They're not there to protect you. They're not, they're not there to care for you. That's not the job of an inhumane system, but our systems are made of humans. <laughs> so if we start from the inside out and we help people to understand that, I know expansion is hard. I know expansion is uncomfortable. I know learning is hard. I know learning is uncomfortable. It means you have to traverse a new territory that you're not sure you can do, right? what if we can push our systems to expand in ways that they do crack open and we can create more space because healing and learning is all about creating space for new to flow in and for new to blossom and bloom um so those are just some of the things i'm musing on i'm those are just um those those are just some of the things that feel really really doable because if not us, who? And if not now, when? Like, really? You know? Well, and along those lines, I'm, in the first episode of this, this season, when you were um, with us as we opened up season four, you shared about restoring the trust with yourself and your body, mm -hmm. um, which I think is the beginning of creating that crack in the system is starting with yourself. Um, can you share ways that you've helped individuals to do the important work of restoration um, and being being able to restore that trust? Um, just like um, I, I'm partly through the book, The Deepest Well, that we referred to earlier with Nadine, Brooke, Nadine Burks Harris, and part of the work is that restoration and trusting yourself and listening to your body because what she talks about is how we've ignored 
our body and those those things that our body has done and we don't trust our own bodies um and so how do we restore that and can you share a little bit about that yeah that's a beautiful question thank you for posing it um it's foundational uh trust in the body because your body is your it's it's your it's your system (laughs) to come back to systems again i didn't mean that but like to be but it's true your body has a system your body is the most intricate thing on this planet the human mind is the most intricate thing, right? Of all of the species, ours is the one that has the most potential to grow and expand in consciousness. Human species is the only one that can play with fire, create fire, produce fire, right? Like, so this disconnection from the body means we're disconnected from everything. When you disconnect from your body, which is your sensor, it's like in at Resma Menachem, who writes My Grandmother's Hands, who's a therapist here in the Twin Cities. He talks about the soul nerve. The soul nerve is in your body and the soul nerve is the thing that responds to your environment. Because every time you walk your body into different spaces, it's resonating with the energy of that space. And your soul nerve, your mind, your body, spirit, everything in your human body is conditioned to tell you if this is safe or if it's not. If this is a trigger, if this is a threat, right? So if we disconnect and we numb from our most intricate signaling cueing system, it's so dangerous. Imagine moving through this world, which every move, just getting on the highway without sense and respond. It's beyond dangerous. Imagine imagine I think about this as I'm raising three daughters, twin 14-year-olds and a 16-year-old. Imagine if I was putting them out into the world, having never taught them about the power of their intuition and their body and trusting themselves in these bodies and knowing when your body says yes and knowing when your body says no and knowing when your body is hungry. Um, Trust in the body is everything because it allows us to then be in communion and connection with the world, with other humans, with the energy of the land and nature. And if we lose that connection, um, the spiral is really quick and deep and dark. And I think I've, I, I, my assumption is that our listeners, as I'm trying to wrap words around that question, are, can feel me when I'm just like, right. And um, so that, that body trust is so critical because it is your most magnificent sensory system that will always tell you but you have to listen. It will always tell you when to move forward, when to stop, when to pull back, when to offer care, when to think like, I don't have energy for this. So the more you establish this deep connection and and in the neuroscience, um, in the body science, it's called interoception, interoception. It's again, a thing. Remember, everything I do is like showing you that there there are roots to this. Our brains are constantly getting input from our body through interoception. Our body is always telling the brain what is happening and our system is making meaning. If you neglect your body repeatedly, it may do two things. Number one, it most likely will keep amping up the symptoms till it gets your attention. I'm a little hungry. I'm a lot hungry. Okay, now I'm hangry. Okay, right? Uh, other severe illnesses or diseases, right? Sometimes can amplify over stages because it's trying to show you like, it's bad. It's really bad. Okay, everybody, it's super bad. Like, so 
our body is always communicating us to the degree of severity of how it's reading what is happening. When you listen to your body, it sends a signal to your body much like when you listen to a child. Imagine when a child is tantruming and wants your attention. What happens if you ignore a child who is tantruming and wants your attention? What do they do? They get louder. Yes. Kirsten, like she lipped that. Yeah, they get louder. It's the same with your body. What does a child do who is tantruming and wants your attention do when you kneel down next to them and you look them in the eye and you say, I'm right here, honey. What do you need? What do they do? They calm down. They try to, through the tears, <laughs> muffle to you what they need. But this is your bot, you're developing a relationship with your body. So this is why I often say when I do my, my morning ritual and I sit, I don't even call it meditation. We've made a big deal out of meditation and, you know, like I just, I don't even like to get tripped up in the language. I just like to say, I just, I sit with my body. And if I choose to focus on my breath, sometimes I do. Sometimes I focus on what I'm looking at. I just sit with my body for at least 10 minutes every morning as I sip my coffee. It's delicious and lovely. And I do, honestly, I say to my body, because I have to, I, I was a, I'm an adult survivor of complex PTSD who, whose body is hyper because she's always had to be attuned to threats everywhere because they were very close for a very long time. I now in my adult self sit with my body and I just say, you are safe. You are safe. This house is safe. You've got a freaking PhD woman. You can protect yourself financially, emotionally. You are safe. You are safe. And it just calms my body and then it sets the tone for my day. And the more that I develop that relationship with my body of safety and being seen, I can more readily listen and respect my body's intuition and my cueing when it says you're tired, sleep, it's time to close the computer, it's time to play with your children. And then I just, I just, I don't override it. And the more that I work in tandem with my body, the more natural my boundaries become as byproducts of me just listening to what my body says. So if you all need permission to say no to something, just say, my body says no. I'm not saying no, but my body says no, <laughs> right? Like it's silly, but it's kind of true, well, but you have to pay attention. And I just recently came across this. This is actually today I came across this quote. Um, and it really resonated with me. And I think it could resonate with some of our listeners as well. And it kind of talks about all the things that we've discussed in here, but it's, the quote says, feeling the need to be busy all the time is a trauma response mm -hmm. and fear-based distraction from what you'd be forced to acknowledge and feel if you slowed down. Yeah. And um, the thing is, is that you keep going at the pace of being busy all the time, just like mm -hmm. you said, um, just like you said, the body's going to keep screaming until it gets your attention and you're going to do a full out stop and, and not be able to go forward. And, um, I, you know, as people are in burnout in different stages, slow down for a minute and pay attention because you keep pushing because it's a trauma response, but it's not serving you well and start restoring that trust in your body and what it's telling you and listen to it. Um, and I'm saying this from a place of experience, not because I've read these things, but I've experienced it in the last year I've been facing or dealing with some PTSD of my own um, from some stress and things like that. And I was out of the situation of the stress, 
but things physically started not working well for me. I, I got sicker than I've been in a long time. I couldn't get over certain things. Like I kept having reoccurrences of certain illnesses that really should not have been an issue. And um, it was like all this stored up stress because I didn't listen to my body when I should have. And at some point your body's gonna break down and it's gonna say, hey, I told you so, <laughs> you know? And I've been really compassionate with myself. Yeah. Instead of beating myself up that I didn't notice or take attention, I'm like, you know what? I'm thankful for this body that even though I didn't pay attention and trust it when it was telling me, I'm thankful that it it is it has done this now and it has got my attention so that I can learn and not do the same mistake twice. Absolutely. And that compassion is is a great final, like, Compassion is the highest form of unconditional love, and it is the most potent force for the self and for others. And uh, Kirsten, thank you for sharing your your personal perspective and experience with that, because I think we need to do that more and more. And I'm, I'm here to tell our listeners too, I know it's scary to slow down. I know you're afraid. I know you're afraid that when you stop, that the the, the wheels are going to come off the bus and you won't know how to face that darkness that we looked at before. Or you won't know how to face even if it's nothing big and dark and looming. Um, but there is support and you'll find when you slow down and you listen and you pay attention. It's a lot like what I often tell people, right? Like I want you to think about the times where you've had to where where like legit that experience was like like quite very terrifying right like you're in a moment where it's like a crisis crisis and what i say is is when we're actually in moments that are crisis crises and really hard many of us are quite centered and quite pure and quite like like we find a source of power that's that's why like moms can like lift cars off their children right like it's true. It's a thing. So what I'm what I'm inviting people is is I know it's terrifying to slow down because you're you're terrified of all the things that will fall, all of the plates that will drop. All I know, I know, I know. And there's only the only thing we can say is this trust of yet you have to live it to believe it. And that when you slow down again, you will activate a part of your soul's knowing and intuition and fierceness that you've never seen before that will carry you through that moment. Um, and the only way to practice that is to do it. You can't conceptualize it. Um, because here's what I've also learned as being a mom with three newborn babies is I just assumed if I kept going, kept going, kept going, that there would be an end or someone would save me. Never happened. Never happened. The end never happened. The, 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 it's just now they're teenage girls and now they're driving and I'm terrified. And no one ever came to save me because guess what? They're busy saving themselves. So it's my job and my responsibility and my agency to slow my body down and sit with myself and say, honey, what do you need? Because whatever you need is going to serve the greater good. So. Yeah. Bulldog educator. We Definitely. really appreciate it. And I hope that everyone enjoyed this set, uh, episode as much as we did. Um, I know Matt and I would love for this to go on, but um, 
Jen has things that she needs to do and we have things that we need to do as well. I got to go to yoga. I'm tell- <laughs> I just, like quite literally have to practice what I preach. So right. my body's telling me you've got to get to yoga. So. Yeah. yeah. So those of you that want to connect with Dr. Jen Clifton, you can connect with her through her website, which is www.presentteacher.com um, backslash who we are and X formerly known as Twitter at Clifton Jennifer or on LinkedIn as Jennifer Clifton. And we will uh, provide links to that in our show notes for those of you that want to connect with her. And again, just thank you so much, Jennifer. And I'm going to put you on the spot, but we'd like to have you back in season five in the spring if you join us. Yes, please. I was hoping you would ask. It's kind of like a second date being like, are they going to ask me on a third date, please? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're going to be a regular guest. How about that? I love you both. And uh, I am so profoundly grateful to be a part of your circle, to witness your fierceness in the world and your advocacy. Um, It helps me feel stronger in what I say. I notice that when I'm with you, that I feel actually, I sit up taller when I'm sitting with you all and we're having this conversation. So thank you for that. We're almost like the Justice League Mm. of of, um, wellness, you know? Yes. (laughs) And since you have twins, we have the wonder twins, you know, of the Justice League. (laughs) (laughs) That's a t-shirt make that happen all right (laughs) thank you again thank you all the listeners too you're doing great doing amazing don't stop (laughs) right yeah and now for our segment of living in beta mode And for this final segment of season four, I want to leave listeners with some ideas for either audiobook or to read on books that both Matt and I recommend. We've mentioned several books over the course of this season, and there are a few that we want to come back to or maybe books we haven't mentioned, but we think might be beneficial to you as you are living in beta mode. The first book that we want to recommend, and this one is a a Matt Caston favorite, is Rest is Resistance by Tricia Hersey. If you don't know about the NAP ministry or in the importance of rest as part of your daily practice, then this is a book that you should read. It will transform and transcend. The next book, and this one is recommended by Kirsten, is The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Harris. If you have experienced trauma or childhood trauma, or you have um, loved ones that have experienced any adverse childhood experiences, this is a book that really explains that hidden issue with our health that's not being addressed. It's wonderfully uh, narrated if you do the audiobook, and it's well written by Nadine Harris. You will enjoy this. It will keep you in, enthralled the entire time, even though it's nonfiction and it's written about medical I- things and ideas. It's written in such a narrative that almost anyone can enjoy. And for me personally, I'm recommending this book and I am t- typically not someone that likes something super technical. Now, as we go into the new year, we all have things that we're thinking about, about how we can plan our vision boards or we can reset ourselves to really come kind of get ourselves back on track. And if you're wondering for a way that you can develop some practices to do that, a great book is Atomic Habits by James Clear. 
This is something that we highly recommend that if you're looking for a way to get yourself on track and really focus on the most important things and make some really big changes in your life little by little, then Atomic Habits is the book for you. And all of these books kind of have a serious leaning to them. So we want to leave you with something because we know as part of the stress cycle, a good belly laugh is a great way to relieve stress. And there is a highly recommended book out there that is a romantic comedy book. It's said to be make anyone re uh, laugh. And that is called The Do-Over by Sharon M. Peterson. We hope that you guys take some time to get away from screens and just take some time to maybe read or relax over the holidays. We thank you for joining us. And listeners, we will be back next spring for season five. We will be bringing back some of our favorites like Dr. Jen Clifton. We also be talking with Crystal Green Braswell. And you may get to have some um, people, hear from some people that we've had on previous episodes. So join in as we bring back some of our favorite guests and possibly bring in new guests so that we all can learn, grow, and, and develop a greater perspective. Listeners, please share your thoughts and ideas with us on our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with at the Bulldog EDU. You can also follow Matt on Instagram at CastIron or X at Matthew Caston. And Kirsten, you can follow on Instagram or X at Teach Kiwi or Facebook or LinkedIn as Kirsten Wilson. Thank you so much for listening to the final episode of season four of the Bulldog Educator. And in the meantime, if you um, would like to fill some time and you have not listened to all of our episodes or you have some favorites over this time period, be a great time to go back and re-listen to some of those favorite episodes. We again, thank you, our loyal listeners, and we look forward to seeing you in 2024. Happy holidays and happy new year. <laughs>